Hello and welcome to Kaiju Curry House. This is episode 111 and tonight we are joined by Mr. Jason Wilson who is a content creator, writer, illustrator. He's done it all but we're going to be talking about Coalface which is his latest creation which features a dragon which we all know and loved. I am joined with regular co-hosts Connor Baxter and Mr. Paul Williams. Hello gents. How are we all doing tonight? Um, Evening. Good, good. Um, I think uh, um, we're forgetting to uh, tell our listeners one thing. Um, it's uh, Happy New Year, folks. That's right. It it is a yes, Happy New Year. Yep. Um, this is, of course, the uh, um, uh, the New Year special, I guess. We've got the Boxing Day special and the Christmas special. Now the New Year special covers, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, anyways. Uh, so um, I guess, as always, we should start with the usual question. What have Kaiju been up to? Um, so I'm going to ask Jason first, um, assuming he's our guest. So, Jason, what have you been... What, oh, God, I messed up already. <laughs> what have Kaiju been up to? Well, I've been putting the finishing touches to um, the book that I've been working on for the past uh, few years. It's been not long in development. Uh, Coalface, uh, The Devil in the Smoke, uh, which is to be released at the end of January. So my Christmas uh, period was spent uh, formatting pages, uh, getting things pulling together, 200 plus pages um, of uh, prose and illustration. And yeah, I'm looking forward to unleashing that on the world very, very soon. Uh, so yeah, looking forward to chatting to uh, you guys about the book. That's uh, brilliant. That's, yeah, that's good. Um, well, that's uh, fair enough. Um, so, um, I guess um, it's your turn now to pass on the question. So um, it is a tongue twister. So um, it is, uh, what have Kaiju been up to? So you can pick either myself, Paul, or Joe. Okay, Joe, what the Kaiju have you been up to? Uh, well, I'm actually prepared this time. You see, I've, I've had recent time to uh, get into some stuff. So um, over the holiday period, I had a couple of boxes come. So I got my defo reel uh titanosaurus which i am over the moon with it has a closed tail which you know titanosaurus being my favorite kaiju i'm quite glad to finally have a variant with that i got the uh star ace ray harryhausen kraken in i didn't go special edition for that because it was big and ungainly enough but that's also a fantastic figure i'm gonna have to get some uh, pictures up of both both of those for all of our listeners but uh, they're great and then recently I sat down and watched, um, not necessarily back to back, but I kind of went through some uh, scenes for comparison between the Japanese cut of Godzilla 1984 and the American redub. And one of the things that I really noticed there, and my partner Don was sitting there with me, and we had a really great conversation about it, was how a good dubbing and sound editing job can make or break a film like that so while the american version is much maligned for you know like cutting inserting its own political agenda what it does get right is the sound editing because if you watch the japanese cut or at least the japanese dub of that or not the japanese cut the english dub of the japanese cut there are long pauses with no dialogue, no music. You don't even hear his iconic footsteps, which if you watch the American dub, that's quite a thing that, you know, like you remember. So it was really interesting to see one of my favorite Godzilla films side by side, just the different versions that are quite popular amongst fans all over the world. But got to sit down and do all of that. And then um, everybody rocked my world by telling me that there was a new Dragon book coming out. So... I'm looking forward to like hearing about that tonight, but I will pass the buck now. Paul, what have Kaiju been up to? Oh, you know me, not not a massive amount. <laughs> well, I, I should say no. I've I've done some things. I don't want to take up too much time. Um, obviously, we're here to talk about Coalface, but I will say I did do as I as I said I would set out to do over the Christmas break, and I watched season two of Good Ultraman. Oh, what? Right. No, <laughs> no. Um, I am reading War of the Worlds at the moment. Oh, oh nice. nice. So, um, so yes, yeah, so there is that, but I haven't finished it yet. Well, I've started to read that, and uh, yeah, I watched Ultraman season two, the, the Netflix anime, and it's fine, but there's just too many Ultramen in it. 
Yeah, it's it's quite different. There was like eight or nine of them. I was thinking, where's oh, the that's aliens? Not a new thing. That's not a new thing. There's is a whole it not? Family. Yeah, okay. Ultraman's dad is like Father Christmas. Didn't you know this? <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> we is. watched season one, and yeah, there's there's the dad that's the original Ultraman, and then his son is Ultraman. Oh no no no! Like that's a different continuity. But like original Ultraman, like his dad is Father Christmas. Oh, okay. No, I have I've, I've never seen the original on, like Ultraman. in Santa Garb in one episode. It's pretty intense. That that sounds pretty oh, fantastic stuff. Um, I think for the next Christmas we're going to have to send you the it's entire. Please, please introduce me to. Yeah, I need to see Ultraman Santa. Uh, I feel like we need to call out that Shin Ultraman will be uh, appearing in UK cinemas January eleventh, this twenty twenty three. Oh, we got a date really? so soon. Wow yeah so you know mark your calendars it won't be out for terribly long but uh it's getting kind of a similar limited release that shin godzilla got so one showing then <laughs> yeah one showing that might turn into more but I, I think godzilla is one of those ones that they could market a bit better ultraman's one of those things where you may know the name but the character i'm not so sure but yeah january 11th is the day that it's been thrown out that it will be coming uh two cinemas in the uk so mark calendars check out your local listings and we'll see where it is okay yeah times. i'll have a look for that sorry to interrupt this... paul but that no, was no. a pretty good segue to that yeah that's um that's great because um me and connor were talking about it on the last episode saying it's going to come to the uk they have said it would but we didn't know when yeah uh, yeah um, so we need a nerdy joe for these sorts of things <laughs> we yeah. didn't realize it'd be that soon that's, that's great be, news i believe it's uh audience cinemas that are for showing it um so if you're like me who live in aberdeen there's no audience it might not be, yeah Okay, yeah, tough luck. Emotions <laughs> around here either. Oh no, there's one. There's one fairly nearby. It's only like I'll have to go and see what. <laughs> okay, but no, Ultraman season two. Yeah, I, I, I it was fine, but um, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't say I loved it. I, I want to see season three. See how they finish it off. Oh man, I, I really like season one. That's the thing. It was just, it yeah, just yeah. looked. I mean, even my son came down and goes, oh, you're watching Iron Man. And there's like Hulkbuster Iron Man. Because that's what it looks like. It looks like the Iron Man suit. Just different variations of him. It's like Iron Man, Hulkbuster, War Machine. But it's like, no, no, this it's all Ultraman. Yeah. Who, ha who has the most iterations? Uh, Doctor Who or Ultraman in terms of the main character? Because I always think Doctor Who is kind of like our version of Ultraman, without the fighting, obviously. <laughs> I think I think it depends because each of the ultras is a different person uh, or a different character altogether. Whilst the Doctor is the same True. character, yes. bar bar say the Peter Cushing ones, which you know. Um, but um, yeah, it's it, it's debatable because they both started running r roughly around the same time. So you know, um, I'll need to look that up. But That's I, I think for you to find out, Connor. <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm thirteen Doctor Who's. I don't know how many Ultra people there are, but conceivably there's a whole planet because they are a race. So, oh, there's uh, planets, alternate realities, and all that. Yeah, it's just um, let's just say the continuity of a lot of the Ultra shows is very loose. So don't take it uh, <laughs> don't take it seriously. Um, but uh, yeah, okay. we picked on you yet? No, no, you have not, Connor. What have Kaiju been up to? So um, you might be disappointed to hear I haven't done anything Kaiju-related, really. I'm um, very disappointed. Yeah. So um, I ended up getting another mug. So um, <laughs> I showed off the Aurora Godzilla mug um, last time, and now we have the Ray Harryhausen Kraken mug, because, you know, uh, oh, nice. Connor's favourite Ray Harryhausen film is Clash of the Titans. Um, this is an official mug, by the way. It's uh, by the Ray and Diane Harryhausen Foundation, um, don't ask me for a go. I forgot the website where I bought it from. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm not only just the number one Meg fan, I'm now the number one Mug fan. So there you go. Um, but other than that, um, come Christmas time, I got two um, somewhat kaiju related boxes, uh, depending on your view of things, because uh, these are strange creatures. These are the universal monsters in 4K. And we were discussing these briefly before we started recording the episode. And uh, I'll just say, if anyone has the previous Blu-ray sets, the Universal Monsters, you're not going to miss, be missing much, you know. Um, but, you know, it's 
any day is a good day to watch a Universal Monster movie. I'll just say that. Um, Can I ask a uh, question? Does that set include Bride of Frankenstein? Um, no. So um, Universal, I think uh, this is just to uh, fleece more money out of you. They actually did two sets, actually. Right. So the first set just has Dracula, Frankenstein, the Invisible Man, and the Wolfman. And the second set has The Mummy, Bride of Frankenstein, Found the Opera, and Creature from the Black Lagoon. It's the Claude Rains Found the Opera, though, so um, the Lon Chaney one, um, I guess, gets a miss, but uh, never mind. Um, that, that being said, um, Creature from the Black Lagoon is probably the best looking out of all, all the films, I think, on that set, you know. Um, they really would be that. because it had the most effort put into its filmography, to be fair, you know, or it's you know, it's recording possibly, and possibly the restoration itself is also top notch, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, but so uh, 2D version, I take it. The two, oh, it, I think it does Both. include the 3D version, I'm, I'm no. not sure. Um, let's see, uh, does not okay, that's fine. Oh, I, th- I think the Blu ray version did, but I could the be Blu ray does have a 3D yeah. version because I am quite keen to show anybody and tell anybody who will listen <laughs> that the 3D version of Creature from the Black Lagoon is brilliant. Oh man, um, yeah, didn't they uh, include like the 3D glasses as well? Um, with the Blu ray sets, uh, the Blu ray, uh, oh no, it's not no, the old, mine didn't come with it, but, it's not the old. Uh, Black and green, sorry, uh, the red and yeah, green. Blue, blue, oh, red. so it's like it's, it's, it's um, proper um, stereo stop stereo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it, it's the proper stereoscopic vision, but it's essentially yeah. you can use the same the glasses that won out in the three D race are the same ones that you use at your typical cinema nowadays if you're seeing three yeah. D motion picture. Right. So if you have those glasses for your home television or whatever three D glasses that you have, depending upon your make, they'll work with the creature from the Black Lagoon. The way that it was shot, it can work with just about anything. They had two cameras at a slightly different orientation, and, and they were synced up so that every other frame is a different camera. So you can pull and take those different viewpoints. You can use one frame and then digitally make it 3D. There are all sorts of things that you can do with Creature from the Black Lagoon, but because it was shot that way, the gateway is open for you to do or to format it however you want in terms of 3D. So that's pretty amazing. <laughs> for the, Avatar, you know, for the yeah, time, right. Joe went over this in an episode. Yes, much, yeah, we did ages ago, didn't we? Yeah, and I am still in awe of the fact that they used old school, like proper film underwater in a cold spring in Florida with actors wearing heavy rubber suits to make that film. That, that, that was very that's a very impressive feat in and of itself and that's a great story that i don't think it's told enough not to it still looks amazing still look those those underwater sequences are i watched it fairly recently and they still really hold up my favorite bit in that film i thought it was just great that someone thought of this is it's his gills flapping when he's out of water just seeing the gills flexing like an actual like an actual fish you know would that was just a great thing that was added there but anyways we digress we are here to talk about coalface jason can you take us through what your book is about without too many spoilers because i totally intend on reading this okay coalface is a sort of a socio-political fantasy fairy tale set within the 1980s uh, Thatcher years of Great Britain, specifically during the year of the year-long coal miners' strike, uh, in which um, Britain was almost plunged into a kind of like a civil war of the, the kind of the, the poorer working-class miners and all the people who fell into their side uh, against the government. Uh, and growing up, I grew up within this uh, this 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 situation because my father was a coal miner uh, who was one of the striking miners. Uh, but I'm going to rewind before that. Going back in time, uh, I used to live in a very, very small. Oh, your age here, doing the VHS tape sound. Yes, yeah. We're, <laughs> going, to, we're going to be going back before the VHS era, even to the mid 1970s. Uh, and I grew up in a, a very, very tiny little young boy uh, in this very, very small village uh, near Hull, um, Scunthorpe. And we lived next to, or very near to, a very, very, very large, uh, almost like something from a Godzilla movie, a very big chemical um, factory, a big, big, almost like a power plant with um, three reactors, and they produced nylon there. And it was this mm-hmm. great big industrial plant. And then one day, one weekend, it exploded when one of the reactors went critical, 
and the entire plant was was boom just wiped out killing everybody in there now thankfully oh. it wasn't a weekend when most of the workforce was away um but the, the men, the men well, that disaster surely has a name so that we so it's the flicksburg disaster if any of your viewers want to look it up there's youtube videos about it there's news reports flicksburg? From is that how you say it flicksborough flicksborough all right there we go and it was britain's it was britain's biggest explosion uh, post-world war ii and one of its biggest industrial disasters uh, in living in living memory um post-world war ii and it wiped out the surrounding area, including the, the, the nearby village. Um, and as a very young boy, I just remember seeing the aftermath of seeing this, the, the mangled wreckage of this, the, this, this enormous power plant and the, the nearby village uh, destroyed. And my brain, because I was super young at the time, it just couldn't compute why, what, what is all this twisted wreckage? What, what does it represent? What is, what is this the weird skeletal things? Like, it was like something from a Godzilla movie, which I obviously years later I came to recognize as something like a very small version of something like, you know, Godzilla's assault on, on Tokyo. Uh, and the surrounding houses with all the windows blown out and there's furniture in the street, like sofas and things, sort of things as a young child, you just wouldn't normally see. It was like a war zone. Um, and it, I thought, did a monster come and destroy this? Did, did, did a giant thing that I would see on TV come and stomp through the landscape? And I didn't know what Godzilla was and things like that at the time. I just had this, just this kind of strange, childish uh, sort of memory or, or idea of images that I've seen in books and things. So it kind of like, it kind of, I think that was the moment that sparked my fascination with monsters and disasters. And then when I saw a Godzilla film, when I was conscious enough to actually understand and watch a Godzilla film, I thought that's just my, the imagery looks just like where I grew up. And my family moved away from the area because they just didn't want to be near this, this you know, devastated industrial work. An extra crater isn't as fun. Yeah, yeah exactly. And we lived, we lived down the river and some of the chemicals spilled out from this disaster and possibly went into the rivers and, and flowed downstream. So we just didn't want to be living in the area. So my parents moved away. Really selling this area. It sounds beautiful. <laughs> it is. It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, we moved from one, in, one tiny little village to an industrial mining um, town in South Yorkshire. So I kind of grew up around a lot of industrial uh, areas uh, yeah a lot of a lot of kind of working class uh, men and women and um, and then years later the minor strike came along we were very very poor during that uh, and there was lots of um, there was violence there was threats there was like people against each other like division in villages who who was for the strike who wasn't for the strike but as a very 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 young teenager at the time I was just dreaming of getting the hell out of there and escaping. And I was still fascinated by monsters. Are you talking about escaping Thatcher era UK? Or are you talking just that general area? Escape, escaping anything to do with industrialization. Because my, my, one of my, as I mentioned, the earliest memory I had was of the destruction. And then I saw this, this, this mining village begin to almost like implode uh, through to unemployment. And the industry was failing. Everything was being closed down. And that's when I think I first got the idea of a creature living beneath the village in, in the coal mine and this, this kind of influence which had seeped out from the coal mine and, and it kind of like, almost like infected the people and the people were fighting for coal. They were fighting for their jobs and coal was a byproduct of that job. And as we all know, now coal is responsible for environmental disaster and the, the heating up of the climate and so forth, all the fossil fuel debates we're having right now. So that kind of like the story developed as years went by. And, um, and then I had the idea of, of a creature that lived within the coal mine that feeds on coal. And basically it wants to emerge from the underworld and spread its influence across this village and then escape from a village into the wider world. Uh, and I wanted to tell a story about industrialization, what people will fight for in terms of um, keeping the lights on. So you have this tension between the sort of industry that kept keeps us heated during the winter, the industry that keeps our lights on, the industry that gives us jobs, but at the same time you have the tension that that same industry is also slowly destroying us and slowly wearing us down. And we're seeing the, the frictions that are coming through in the past year with um, the war that's going on in Europe with Russia, um, the fact that um, we have fuel poverty at the moment, the fact that we're trying to move to greener energy, but we're still reliant on fossil fuels. So we have this kind of like, um, it's almost like a Faustian pact we've made with the, almost like a devil 
to keep ourselves, to keep our economies going, to keep to keep the lights on, to keep to keep our, all our computers running, to allow us to work, whilst we know we need to pivot towards greener energies. So I wanted to write a story about a monster that represented all of those tensions within this kind of microcosm of this small mining village in the north of England during the 1980s, which we're seeing echoing today uh, in terms of what's going on in this country, it's going on across the world in places like Germany. I was fascinated by being in Germany last year in that the people voted for a green government in Germany because Germany is a very progressive country when it comes to renewable energies. But Germany has no, it has no power supply of its own. It has no nuclear power plants. It has, it has no, it has no coal-fired energy. It relied on importing everything. So the populace had voted for a green government, thinking, okay, we need to think about the future. And then the war came in Europe, and then they had to open up all the old coal mines. They had to ship coal in to the old coal-fired coal power stations to, to get things back on stream, to get them through the winter. So it was, I thought, my God, this is exactly like the sort of situation I'm writing about in this story. So the old, the old demon essentially has returned, you know, it's fumes and smoke spreading across the land and the people are kind of stuck between this, this, the, these two sides. And the tensions, again, the tensions are coming through. So the monster in Coalface, um, the dragon, as people call it, represents that kind of Faustian tension between communities, jobs, and the environment. So that was a lot to take in, but that's the general gist and the thrust of the actual theme of the story. And then there's the actual, there's the, the actual story above that, which is an adventure uh, story about uh, two, te two teenage boys, uh, Tony and Billy, and they're, on, on both sides, they're on, they're on both sides of the strike. They both have a different view of what their fathers are doing and what their fathers are fighting for. Tony wants to escape. He just wants to escape into imagination. He wants to escape into fantasy. And his friend Billy is, is more, uh, he is on the side of that the militant miners who are fighting for their, their local pit. Uh, unbeknownst to them, this creature is rising to the surface as the strike is going on. And as a strike enters the winter and people are getting cold, desperate, hungry, beginning to turn on one another, that's when this creature will emerge. So what, in what format does this uh, story like come out? Is it, I've seen art and it, it almost looks like comic book, but is it like, how much wordage are we looking at? Basically, how, what is, what's the size that we're talking about, the volume here? It's a 200 page um, heavily illustrated storybook in that there are chunks of prose with, with illustration. So it's a page of prose, big illustration, prose illustrations not to do within the prose and then illustrations. Oh, so that's awesome. I, I love books like that. That's great. And what uh, what reading level will it be? It's young adults, uh, teenage onwards. Oh, awesome. I've got a few of those knocking around, so. Yes. And beyond all the politics of the story, I mean, that's all beneath the surface. That's kind of like, that's the theme and the message I'm talking about. Uh, and I want, I want the reader to discuss these themes because it doesn't say what's right or wrong because it's very hard for us to live our lives to be right and wrong in some ways because we just have to keep going we have to feed ourselves and we make choices that sometimes are not good choices or the unavoidable choices that lead to bad things so that's what i want the reader to discuss so if teenagers read it or adults read it or older people read it they can discuss the themes of the story and, and think that okay things are not black and white there's, there's nuance here but they do lead to tensions and they do lead to division and how do we guide ourselves through that via a monster story? Because I'm very interested in, I'm very interested in political themes, metaphors via monsters. I think Shin Godzilla um, was kind of ran very close to being, well, definitely was a political monster movie. And I thought that was one of the most um, clever examples of, of, of a political monster story. I, don't, I was always writing, I was already writing Coldface before Shin Godzilla because this book has been in development for quite a while. Mm -hmm. But when I saw Shin Godzilla, I was like, oh yeah, that, that's, that's taking something which we all know is an icon and it's turning it into something else and it's discussing deeper themes. And you can have a different take. I've heard people in Japan, I spent a lot of time in Japan, who really hate Shin Godzilla and then there are people who really like Shin Godzilla. There are some people who think Shin Godzilla is a, is a story about green energy and people pulling together. And I know there's people who think Shin Godzilla is a nationalistic right-wing message. So it's quite interesting how you have these different 
readings of the same different film. direction. I thought it was a comedy about how corporate structure. Well, works. yes, it's satire as well. Yes, the Doctor Strange love style. <laughs> you could also say that almost every single Godzilla film ever made has a message of some sort or a political yes. allegory. You know, um, uh, for instance, of course, the original, of course, is um, anti-nuclear weapons and all that. Uh, um, Hedora, yeah, yeah, pretty pretty clear what that's about. Yeah, some are, yeah. some are quite strong, blatant messages, aren't they? Where others are, yeah, exactly. Hedora, less... yeah, which I love. <laughs> <as well. laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Okay. And the, uh, so the book's coming out at the end of January. Yes, fingers crossed. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Okay, and where would we be able to buy that? It'll be available on Amazon. I'm self-publishing it. Uh, I've been, it's, the book has been in development for about six years, uh, and it's, it kind of metamorphosized as it went along. Um, when we first pitched um, Coalface, my Iden agent at the time, um, it was met with a resounding no. It, it confused a lot of mainstream publishers, partly because when you pitch a book about a dragon with teenage characters, Publishers automatically assume it's dragon means a children's book. They don't understand allegory. They don't understand. It sounds like a fascinating concept. Somebody is going to get wrapped on the knuckles for passing this up for sure. Yes, when is I there going to be a hard trailer, Are you I doing a little teaser trailer, one minute long teaser, and I, I put it onto Twitter about seven weeks ago, and within four days it got like, you know, uh, you know for, for a book tape trailer, big numbers, but for, you know, not for a Hollywood uh, trailer, but it got like over 6,000 views in the space of a few days. Um, you know, so I was really, I was very happy with the response it got, um, because I think it just keys into a lot of discussion points that people are talking about at the moment. I mean, it's all we heard about going into the winter was the, you know, the fuel crisis and the fuel poverty and everyone's going on strike at the right. You timed the release perfectly. Are you going to release like a hardcover version of this? There's going to oh, be two but... versions. There's going to be a deluxe hardcover version, which will be a little bit more expensive. And then there's going to be a paperback version because I also want to make a version that's affordable. And as you know, making books is pretty expensive, especially these days, obviously with the price of oil and paper. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Be on the Kindle, actually. That's Amazon's. Uh, the digital, when you self-publish, yeah. it automatically comes out on Kindle as well, doesn't it? Yes, that's right. No, it's automatic, is it? They just. It's not automatic. You have to. No, I, have I think you just tick a box or something like that, don't you? Okay, so you don't have to do too much extra work to get it released on that platform. That's no. That's good. No, <laughs> no. and I really, I really wanted to go through uh, a, a well-known big publisher because I actually quite like working with publishers, and all my life I've worked through you know, mainstream uh, publishers. Um, but for this this story, it just it just fell in a very strange bracket. Um, it, it was a story about unemployed, mostly men. Um, it was about a boy navigating through a world where the world around him is changing. It's, it's at a pivot point in history where technology is changing. So you have the old industries of the blue collar industry and, we're, and 1994, everything was pivoting towards the beginning of the digital era and the fallout of things like the coal mining strike in Northern Townsies, the, the men couldn't go to work. So the women were the ones who were going to work, getting jobs, becoming the breadwinners and becoming independent and were then in a, looking after the men. So in a weird way, you had the situation where men were not able to work, but the women were flourishing and becoming politicized and becoming independent. Uh, and so it was this interesting, this interesting pivot point. So I wanted to have this character who was hearing all these different voices. He was hearing the angry voices of all these men and other boys. And then he was hearing all the voices of, of all the female character and the strong women who were going to work and supporting uh, you know, their children who were organizing uh, charity and, and food kitchens and, um, and and pulling themselves and, and organizing themselves so you had this interesting like it was like a junction different things were happening at different times and this character this tony character could, could go either way he could fall he could succeed he could listen to negative voices or he could listen to positive voices he could change himself so i wanted to have that going on within this this monster story as uh, as part of the backdrop too talk about different you know, like uh, groups of people flourishing in this time period and, you know, different characters, you know, that we're going to be encountering in the book. 
will we be encountering like characters other than the two boys which you mentioned before will there be yes. female characters yeah okay. there's most of the most i wanted to write a story where most of the adult men had been taken away and that's part of the mystery is what's happened to the men because this this village um stainsbury because the winter has happened after this one year coal strike so coal is a scarce commodity for the people who actually dug the coal so they're freezing at home they're cold they're bitter they're angry and they're trying to find different ways to keep the houses warm because i don't know if you know this but a lot of the houses uh, during the 80s in coal mining village were actually powered by coal so you put the coal into your fireplace and that heats your hot water without the coal you can't have hot water so what happened during the miners strike is a lot of men would go to the what we call the slag heaps which are the spoil tips with these great big blackened hills that kind of loom over the villages and uh, this, you know there's a famous story now they're picking for coal basically yes and they're still fragile now they're still you know they're still worried that they could still collapse onto villages um so they would go to these slag heaps and they would dig the coal waste and bring the coal waste home it was filthy horrible you know waste coal that they would try to burn now, in the mystery of my story, there's something beneath the, 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 the coal tips. There's something, as I'm sure you can guess. And so by burning this coal, they're slowly releasing this thing into the air for it to rise up from, the, from which is buried underneath the coal tips. Uh, and the two male boy characters, the teenage boys, they start realizing the men are disappearing in the village and you know and including their own fathers so they're trying to work find out what's happened to the fathers they don't go to the police because the police are very hostile against the miners and they think they might end up in a you know a youth correction facility or something like that so they're taking on themselves to find out what's going on so all most of the adults male voices are taken away from the story and the boys are just kind of acting on what they've heard their dads telling them so it's like it could be things like conspiracy theories it could be stuff about the police it could be fearful stuff it could be militant voices and the only other adult voices you hear in the story are mostly the female voices in the village. And, you know, they're, again, they're kind of like galvanized. They're, they're the ones who are going out. They're the ones who are kind of bigging themselves up. So it's about teenage boys. How do they throw off the influence of their fathers uh, and aspire to get out of their the kind of the working class background? To Because you know, most of those boys, including myself, would have been working down a coal mine because my, my father basically said to me, you're going to work down the pit like I do and your granddad did. It was like a legacy thing. It's what, those, what working class kids did. They didn't aspire to go to university because it just wasn't talked about going to university. You just went to work in a factory or a mine or, or you just did what your parents did. So these boys, again, at this junction where they can think, oh, we could use this to kind of get out of this situation. So Tony's feeling the pull back to the past, but he wants to go to the future. He wants to aspire to something else. So he's caught within this, this again, this kind of like this turning point. So it's one of the elements of the story. And when this dragon emerges, the village is galvanized behind this demon, this, uh, this creature, because it promises them, oh, I can make your village strong again. If you keep digging the coal, you'll be you'll be warm forever. I can feed you. I can make. You, I can build. You, I can. You know, we can make something of this. We can win. So you it's can imagine, a sentient creature that speaks. It's it. People hear the voices. That it's, it's oh, so it's, it's like one of those things. Like it, it, like leeches into their minds. Yeah, exactly. They interpret it how they want to interpret it, and they interpret it as it's something that can help them win the fight. But ultimately, this thing will destroy them and it will feed on them. And, the, you know, it, it's, it's not a good thing. But the villagers believe it is. Because for the men who were striking during the minor strike, coal was a good thing for them. It was good for their community. It fed, you know, fed their community for 100 years. It kept, you know, kept everyone in employment. But it's not sustainable because, as we know, coal, oil, all those kind of things, they're, they're going to be phased out. So it was inevitable that it was doomed anyway. But the problem with all these kind of like, these rust belt towns and these old industries, and you, you see it across the world in America and the UK, all the powerful voices start exploiting the situation. And they tell these people, I can make your life better if you vote for me. And that again is what the monster represents in this thing. It's this kind of like, this ideology of exploiting a terrible situation and potentially making it worse but these this thing doesn't care about the people it just wants to feed it just wants to grow stronger it just wants to spread its influence okay it's brilliant and the the dragon himself it looks very demonic <laughs> where did, where did you get the influence from 
Uh, well, I, putting all the all the heavy stuff aside, I'm a huge fan of uh, Ray Harryhausen, uh, and some of my earliest memories of watching movies are Ray Harryhausen films. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I wanted to capture an element of Ray Harryhausen in the, the art style. Uh, and the Tony character, the teenage boy in the story, he's obsessed with monsters and monster movies. I was uh, thinking that the dragon looked very Harryhausen-esque. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. And so I wanted the creature to have an element of a, of a Ray Harryhausen creation. I, wanted, I didn't want it to look like something super modern. I wanted it to have a little bit of a retro, because the story set in 1984. I wanted the monster to feel like it was something from that time or before. So it, I would imagine like if this was, you know, if Coalface, not that I'm writing this to be a film or a TV show, but if it, if, it, you know, if it was, I would like the creature itself to almost be like, almost like a stop motion looking Ray Harryhausen creature in, in a kind of a, a northern, you know, northern mining town, kind of you know, moving around the streets, kind of moving in that kind of Harryhausen style. That's, that's so therefore, the creature is inspired by Harryhausen, and it's also inspired by, there's an element of the story which is a little bit like um, uh, the Divine Comedy, the, the Gustav Dore illustrated version. Um, okay. I wanted the lighting of the story to be very Gustav Dore-esque uh, in terms of, um, in, in the Divine Comedy, it's about a character who's basically lost his way in life and he's, he's descending this, the seven circles of hell before he can ascend into heavenly pastures. So I wanted the story to have an element of of descending into hell as, as the as the influence of the demon, the dragon, as, as the characters call it. It's actually a demon, but everyone calls it the dragon. Okay. As its influence spreads and becomes stronger and stronger in this mining village, the morning mining village, as the story goes on, it starts transforming to a hell, an industrial hellscape, and it becomes more and more and more exaggerated and more hellish and more demonic until this creature's sleeping on huge mountains of coal and the, the, whole, the entire colliery is, looks like something out of like Dante's Inferno. And the, the characters, there's a female character story, but I don't want to say much about her because I don't want to spoil it. Because all my all my promotional materials is, materials is mostly focused on the two teenage boys, but there is a female character that has, that has a very pivotal part in the story. But I want to save her awesome. for, uh, for for later. I know, but we, you know, there are lots of female you know, folks that are listening to this podcast. You know, like they're very interested in having their voices heard, or you know, like having some representation. So it's awesome to know that that's in there. Yes, yeah, and she she also. She's also a, a tension point in the story as well. There are the two boys and then there's the female character. In the, oh, there's a triangle, is there? Yes. And she's, well, I'll say a little bit about it. She's there to slay the dragon. Billy, mm -hmm. who's the one who's more on the side of the kind of like his father and, and kind of the militant aspects of the story. He, what, he wants the coal to flow and he believes the dragon will help them. But he knows if the girl, this female character, kills the dragon, it might also mean their town. What happens to their village? What happens to the, what happens to them if they don't have coal anymore? And Tony's kind of like he he just wants to get the hell out. He doesn't care about he doesn't even care about the village or the dragon. So there's this 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 kind of like yeah, there's a triangle between these these three characters. It's brilliant. I, everything you're saying about this book is just fantastic. I can't wait to read it. Like. There's a lot of really wonderful things here. And the fact that, you know, it, it is definitively British in a lot of ways. Like, I, I really appreciate that when we're talking about, you know, like Thatcher era Britain, that may not, you know, like catch an American audience as much. But here, that's still very much in the hearts and minds of a lot of people. And it's a very important part of this country's history. And like one of the driving forces for, you know, like the modern economy, you know, like a lot of it's based in like that switch. And I think that it's long overdue to actually have like a creature feature that is not only in a like in a relatively modern world, you know, but it doesn't come from outer space. It's not necessarily a kaiju, but this is something that's always been there. It's always been British and it's been, you know, brought into the world kind of out of like, again, like you said, like an industrial action. But, you know, like when you talk about the industrial revolution and how, important that is to this country's history like there's just a lot of things there that really reflect like this island like we've we've got something in this book and our fandom has something in this book that is so 
definitively ours. It's it's fantastic. I'm really interested yeah, in reading the, it. The, the history of the, the actual, within the history, the, the lore of the story, it stems back to the Industrial Revolution. That's that's where the story begins. That's where the echoes go back to, or the echoes come from the Industrial Revolution echoing into the modern day. It's kind of like it, where the being, the entity has always been around. It just yes. takes shape. Oh, that's awesome. Yes. And people see what they want to see into it. People think they can exploit it. People think they can work with it. People think they can feed it. So it, it's, sim it's just basically, it's symbolic of industry and technology. Technology can help us. Fossil fuels allowed us to thrive. Fossil fuels allowed us to invent things. Fossil fuels allowed us to travel. Fossil fuel built empires. But we also now know it will also destroy us. And it's like all technology, you know, the so, you know, social media, it's an amazing thing. The character in the story, because they're very, they also are very into computers. Uh, 1984 was a big year for, for home computers. And, and Tony wants, to, all he desires is to make video games. He wants to, be, he wants to make video games. That's all he thinks about and talks about. Um, and again, they, they, the teenage characters, they think computers in the future will solve that, that. This new technology where they don't have to work down a coal mine or in a factory they can you know, program and make computer games. It's an escape from their working class shackles. And so they dream of this like, almost like um, a better tomorrow via technology. But as we've seen now, the dream of technology, the dream of the internet, the dream of things like, I'm sure social media starts off as a good thing, but we've seen how that festers and becomes poisoned and turns people against each other. And we're always, we just seem to be just stuck in this constant cycle of technology, which is great, and technology which just divides people or enslaves them or makes them addicts or makes them, you know, work harder or, or they lose their jobs because of technology. Uh, just like the, in the Industrial Revolution, the Luddites smashed up machines because they were taking jobs away from them and they couldn't get fairer wages. Just as we're going to see in the near future, AI and robotics are going to increasingly impact on probably working class workforces because they're always the workforce that are most impacted by technology. Just like in the Industrial Revolution, it was the working class people who were impacted the most by technology. And today or in the near future, it'll be the working class people again who are impacted on technology because they won't have those jobs because they'll be replaced by this, that, and the other. But it doesn't mean it's inherently evil or bad. It's just the powers that be that will exploit that technology. And again, that's an aspect of the creature in Coalface, what it kind of represents in terms of a, you know, as a, as a metaphor. Yeah. Mm. yeah that's, I mean, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. And uh, as Joe said, the fact that it's in Britain is just great because we don't get that very often. And the fact that it's not, whenever I think dragon, I think fantasy. I always think it's, it's, it's Lord of the Rings. You know, it, it, it's, it's not set in a place that I would recognize especially not Britain. So this well, I is... think that was one of the problems with pitching it to publishers. I think, <laughs> I think, I think, uh, you know, when I pitch this in my pitch document, there's a one line synopsis and I don't go necessarily into all the stuff I've talked about here. I'm just infusing to you guys because you're fellow monster fans. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, but for a publisher, they go, Oh, dragon oh, set in the, you know, a fictional version of a South Yorkshire mining town. Hmm, are people going to be interested in that? I remember my agent saying to me after a while, I said, Jason, <laughs> nobody's interested in this setting. Nobody cares anymore. And then this, that, that was like five years ago. And now we have basically descended back into that time. You know, we've gone back into that time of division. We've, we've gone back into the whole thing. We're talking about energy and fuel poverty. People can't afford to heat their homes. Uh, coal is back on the agenda again. So, I mean, it's really sad because I didn't, I didn't want this to happen. And it's not something I'm jumping on the bandwagon to exploit as a, as a, as a creative um, effort. We just have yeah. somehow, the book has somehow become relevant again. And that's kind of really sad to see. It's like we don't learn, we haven't learned from the mistakes of the past because there have been oil crises in the past. There have been wars in the past. We did have things like the Cuban Missile Crisis. We have had mass unemployment. We have had general strikes where the working force don't feel appreciated so they go on strike and we just don't keep we just don't learn from the mistakes and therefore books like this sadly become relevant again um unfortunately but i think at the time five four years ago um people were like mm, this is you know a dragon why is it not a you know why is it not a fantasy dragon you know uh why has it not got a happy ending it's not very hollywood and so on and so on and so on um, but I remember when I was a young boy, because I grew up in a very working class area, I remember when I first saw the movie Alien 
Uh, and when I first saw the movie Alien, it was in a, in a working man's club in Doncaster. And in working men's club back in the day, they used to have, they would hire out a 60 millimeter projector and they would show films on a screen. And you'd have all the men and women all, you know, drinking beer, not smoking, cigarette smoke everywhere and kids you know, breathing in the smoke and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it's not alien for the first time in this very industrial working class setting. And I remember the characters of Parker and Brett they were almost like a voice for the kind of people that I grew up well, with. Well, they're all space truckers. That's, that's yeah, exactly. The, 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 giant oil the only one by truckers. The only one isn't who isn't part of the working class in that picture is the one that isn't human. And I'm not talking about the alien. I'm not going to spoil it for folks who haven't seen Alien. <laughs> Paul, Paul with the face hugger on his couch right there for everybody who's like listening along, chuckling away. But like Ash is the one character in that film where you can tell he's corporate. He he's, he's not on the same wavelength with the rest of them because the rest of them have very pertinent discussions about what works, what doesn't, am I getting paid for this? Yeah. What's going on with our bonus? Are we getting paid? I don't want to do anything extra if we aren't getting paid. And yep. those are very relevant conversations because a lot of people get exploited by the larger companies that they work for. Exactly. And, uh, and I just, I watched that movie and I was too young to necessarily understand all those thematics. But as I grew older, I thought, Alien was like a really fantastic blue collar sci-fi horror movie. It was almost like in a kind of an industrial fairy tale horror in space, these truckers pulling this oil rig. And it is, I think the oil refinery is full of coal and oil. I'm sure it says something about coal and oil. And even when they land on the planet, I remember when Ash is, you know, is, is doing a diagnostic of what's beneath the surface of the planet, they talk about, oh, there's coal beneath the blah, blah, blah. So they mention things like coal when they're analyzing the little planetoid they land on. And, and it's, an alien is about the industry turning against them. And, and it, the, the, the machine really has. Biomechanical. I mean, yeah, like, it, it's, it's great symbolism itself. all the way through. But this is Paul's exactly. bag. Paul, you need to say something about Alien. <laughs> yeah, the Alien. I mean, it's, it's one of the few Alien movies which always disappointed me about every other Alien movie since, is in Alien, the creature. You know, forget Aliens, forget Queen Aliens, all that kind of stuff, just Alien in, in isolation. The creature is a biomechanical thing that is almost formed from the machinery of the ship or the or the, or the previous ship. It is part of the industry, the people, you know, literally almost. You know, it's it's, and in isolation, I just think we don't get many stories that have that kind of level of sort of blue colonists about it. I think Alien 3 came close to it with all the men, you know, or, or basically on the steel refinery and podcast. stuff. <laughs> we, we don't mind three that much. It was, like it was, a, it was, it was, um, the director's cut is better. And, kind of like um, it, it, it tried, it, it tried. Like Star Wars prequels are looked upon a better light now that we have like the sequel trilogy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, Alien 3 does get a lot of hate. Um, but it's, it's not a bad film. It's got very strong thematics. I really like, I mean, I think Alien is a fantastic. Ripley movie. It's just a shame the alien, the alien content is not that great in that film. But in terms of a them thematic of an all-male, again, they're almost like working class characters, aren't they, in, in a steel refinery, it's a lead mill, isn't it? It's, for all intents and yeah. purposes, a steel mm -hmm. refinery. And I mean, can, can you imagine a Hollywood movie where all the most of the 90% of the male characters are murderers and rapists? And Ooh. and who pitched the idea of like, oh well, now we'll just drop in a female character. <laughs> and stir it all up and the aliens come as well and, and we go from there. But it's an amazing, strong, it's an amazing, strong female empowering film through Sigourney Weaver and how she deals with all these male characters and their toxic masculinity. And there's that one scene, isn't there, in the, in the, the extended cut where the male characters are talking, oh, what would you do if you saw her walking down the corridor? And one guy goes, well, I'll give her the old wink. And you know, it's, that's how some men do talk. Yeah. And, and the, and, and the fact that these men then have to work with the female character to get rid of the thing that is going to kill them all. It's a, I think it's a really, thematically, conceptually, it's a very strong movie. It's just a shame it came after Aliens. So most people, you know, um, wanted a, you know, the, the happy ending and the family lives and all that kind of stuff and said they got like the complete opposite of that. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I could argue as well that the ending is also would have been a fitting end to the entire series as a whole, but uh, 
I guess the gaming money, I guess. <laughs> it's a big downer, isn't it, Alien 3? But I was watching Alien 3 recently and there was a, a line that really stood out to me in the extended version, which I don't think was in the the theatrical cuts, where the when Bishop arrives, the human Bishop, and Ripley's going to kill herself by throwing herself into the refinery. And, um, and he's like the devil. He's tempting her. You know, he's talking to her and saying, you know, you know we can take it out of you. And then there's that one line where he says, you can still have children, you know, a family. And it's like, he's using, he's trying to, he's trying to manipulate almost like the, the female, the mother side of, of Ripley to entice her to come back. And there's that moment where she almost thinks about it and just says, no. And it's just an empowering moment of like, she's taken the decision. It's her body. She'll do what they want. She needs to destroy this thing inside her because it's going to, you know, potentially kill everything. And she just says, no. And I just think that's, I think that's one of the finest moments in the entire series of films, if I have to be honest, in terms of just a really powerful moment. And then music swells and that's great. <laughs> but I suppose we should say, aside from Coalface, um, you also did, uh, I know you said you spent many years at Sony Computer Entertainment. You, you worked on or co-created Medieval, um, which again must have lots of ghouls and ghosts and creatures in that you probably designed. Um, and I know you, you also did Surface Tension, which was like a um, sci-fi ecological fantasy. Um, was that was that a comic or a, a graphic novel? That was that was a, a comic series uh, collected into a, a graphic novel. Oh, was it okay? Yes, you. Title comics. Okay, so you've done a lot of stuff. Is there? Yeah, <laughs> too, too much stuff. It confuses people uh, when I'm looking. When I'm, you know, when I'm not creating my own you know create your own stuff and i go to companies to you know looking for work and things like that they get really confused like like, like what, what are you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, what what job do you want uh because you've done so many different things like where do we put you um i think i just get really bored quickly i like to move around and, and try different things out and um some things work and some things don't work um but it seems like a lot of stuff i've done does seem to be around circling around sort of fantasy and, and horror stuff but surface tension game was um was kind of like it's a bit that's kind of like a monster story uh it was an ecological monster story i i look at coldface and surface tension as like two sides of the same coin in a way in that surface tension was i wanted to create a really bright sunny daylit kind of fantasy horror story where everything's sunny and there's flowers and it's all green and nice but there's like this festering thing you know the heart of it and it was all drawn in very kind of pastely colorful tones, which kind of like is about a waterborne virus that wipes out most of the population. So I wanted to have a kind of watery feel to the artwork. And with Coalface being about the earth and, and coal, I wanted it to be rough and charcoal and, and textured and dirty and, and feel smudgy. And there's moments in Coalface when Tony dreams of the future, when he aspires to be in the future of tomorrow, to escape to a world of video games and computers and creativity. He sees the world in color. So it's all like nice, clean color. And then when he slips back into going back to his, his, his divided village, coal mining village, then it all descends back into charcoals and grays and sepia tones and heavy shades and darkness. So you have this nice kind of like balance between the, the visual art styles. But they're essentially you know, two different sides of the same coin. Okay, yeah, because I, I was looking at some of the artwork for that surface tension, and it, yeah, it, there were there was some definite um, creepy vibes going on there of, of some of the, the, the creatures. Um, I have a funny story with surface tension. It, when, it, when it first came out, it got signed the option to be a TV show in, in the states, and I had a few meetings oh. with. Um, it was going to be for the sci sci-fi channel. Uh, and I had a few meetings with the, the producers there about the uh, about the turning it into a TV show. And the first thing they said to me said, "You know, you know, Jason, all those monsters are going to have to go." <laughs> <laughs> I guess monsters are just too expensive for a, a TV show. Yeah, it's it's money first, product layer, very much. Spent <laughs> all their money yeah. on Tremors the series. To be fair, that's where all the monsters went. <laughs> yeah, I think they were basically looking for another Walking Dead. It was during that time when everything was going to be the next Walking Dead. They just wanted the virus bit, but they didn't want the, they didn't want the big tentacle monsters coming out of the sea. Mm. Okay, yeah. I suppose like, I mean, yeah, okay, you can see why because um, yeah, it probably would be a lot lot of money. 
Yes. They, they, would, they would have to do it, focus on. But I mean, there's nothing wrong with focusing on the human story and just showing glimpses. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. That's why I think a lot of the Lovecraft adaptations go wrong. Um, you know, they've talked a lot, haven't they, about making Mountains of Madness into a movie. Um, oh, for so, decades, isn't yeah, it? I feel like that's yeah, been yeah. talked about. And I remember mm-hmm. reading the scripts, one of the early drafts to the film, I don't know which draft it was, I'm sure it was rewritten many times, but they'd kind of turned it into like an action movie. And I remember thinking, it's kind of not how I imagined at the Mountains of Badness. I imagine you glimpse the creatures, they're silhouetted, they're, you know, they're in, they play more in your imagination. They're not like barreling at you with people with shotguns blasting at them and things exploding. Yeah, I would say I wouldn't imagine Lovecraft's work as uh, being action oriented. That's all I wouldn't imagine. Um, no, people do try though, don't they? They do try to spice it up. <laughs> oh man. Um, I'm surprised we haven't mentioned the big fat BAFTA that's sitting on the shelf right there uh, yet. Oh, I forgot. That, oh, yes. that was, that's 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 uh, it's wonky and it's it's kind of crocked, which is kind of apt because it was the BAFTA for medieval, so it's uh, it fell off the shelf once and bent. <laughs> so it's, oh, no. it's, it's, it's propped up by Mechagodzilla at the moment. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, Actually, uh, I should probably bring up uh, Medieval as well, because um, that was probably the first thing um, that I was introduced to uh, that features your work. And uh, yeah, um, and uh, I'm going to be a bit cheeky about this, but uh, I heard you were the voice of Sodan as well. <laughs> yes, I was. Yeah, um, I was the, I was the, vo- the voice director um, alongside the, the audio producer, for medieval and we auditioned lots and lots of different actors to try to play Sir Dan. And it was so embarrassing hearing kind of relatively well-known TV actors trying to do a, you know, okay, now imagine you're a, you know, a skeleton and your lower jawbone has fallen off and you're reading these lines of dialogue. And it was, I just felt so embarrassed for them. So I just thought, I'll just, I'll just do it. I'll just do it. I'll just do it myself. It's fine. Yeah, that's yeah. not funny. I'll do this misery. <laughs> yeah, I know. I did that. Um, yeah, and, and it kind of keeps coming back to you know, it keeps coming back to haunt me. Uh, so <laughs> the it will never go away. <laughs> so I, I sold something recently in the house, and uh, a chap turned up to buy the thing I was selling, and uh, he turned up with some medieval merchandising and said, "Oh, I'm a big fan of medieval. Can you can you sign these things for me?" It's like, oh no, it's like they're everywhere. But I, I love medieval. I'm like a, I'm glad that a lot of people like it. So it's it's nice. Yeah. Um... I don't suppose we could get could get a cheeky wee uh, Sultan uh, voice impression. <laughs> oh, okay, I'll try. Normally, I need, I need to muffle my mouth a little bit, so it's like. <laughs> Jason, you've made my night. <laughs> That's like a McDonald's drive-through, typically. Isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I'll have a, I'll have a Big Mac and uh, medium fry. <laughs> that was very good. Yeah, you got it right. Cool. <laughs> Thank goodness they have the teleprompters now that you can just see what you. That's okay. Like, yeah, it pops up on the screen now, so we know it's yeah, great. Yeah, I think that, that was done for a reason. <laughs> but, well, I think we've reached that uh-huh. mo- that time in the episode, unfortunately, where we're going to have to come to, if nothing else. Jason, would you like to take it away? We're obviously going to plug your book. But what else should we look at? I'm going to show you because you're all kaiju fans. I'm going to plug. I'm going to plug things that are very hard to find now, but you might better find them on eBay. And that is these DVD box sets from Japan, which are um, huge. This, this is a range of um, <laughs> basically it's a Toho production, and it's basically a release. They come out at once a month in newsagents in in Japan, and, and it's basically every single Toho kaiju film released in these nice these nice chunky box sets so this is like just a it's kind of halfway between a4 and, and um, a3 sized and in each one of these things it comes with a, a dvd of the film so get the film in there dvd and in here basically for every film you get all of the merchandising in terms of printed materials that was released that year the film came out so you get things brilliant like, why don't why don't yeah why don't we get that because that we looks amazing <laughs> so for example with the first godzilla um dvd set you get the original theatrical program a, a, a replica of it 
Um, so that would that's what would have come out in the theater with Godzilla. Brilliant. And a few yen buying, and you take that home with you. Uh, and inside this one, you have a like a very the first ever manga adaptation of Godzilla. Oh, and you no get way. to see by this point, they haven't quite got Godzilla right. He's literally just a dinosaur without <laughs> big spines on his back. A very overweight dinosaur stomping through Tokyo. So, but they're, they are very, very beautiful. There's some very nice kind of uh, black and white artwork in there. So is this an get... ongoing series? Or have it's they all... finished a couple of years ago. So the entire okay. range has been done and dusted. But you could probably buy them as, as, as back issues. And you get yeah. all the, you get all the original theatrical. Sorry? What are they called? So like if we They're look them up on like eBay or something? DVD box. So type <laughs> in Godzilla Toho DVD box. And that's what the range is called. And you get all the, for example, you get all the, the banners and the advertising, all the advertising banners and flyers that would have come out at the same time as the film. So you get things like these nice, um, and they're all, they're all different sizes, by the way. So you get all these like nice, nice banners that you can frame in picture frames. You get, um, you get things like all the banners for things like King Kong versus Godzilla. Basically, you just get you get everything that was produced the year that film came out inside the box. Uh, you get uh, that's pretty impressive things. I don't know how much the, they cost. That was the manga that came out the same year as Godzilla with the film, and this is the actual vintage, replica of the actual vintage, the actual program that would have been available in the, in the, in the theater. So you get all those reproduced, and you get all the original posters. For example, here's the program for Godzilla versus Mothra. Which is very nice. So, uh, how many have you got here? Godzilla one. Yeah, and the posters are beautiful as well. They're really nice quality, thick, thick um, stock that they're printed onto. Oh, spared uh, no expense. So yeah, and you also get all the all the other silly Toho films like you know, King Kong Escapes and all that kind of stuff. And this is the the program that would have come with King Kong Escapes. But yeah, hunt them down. The only problem is. In when you buy these in Japan, they cost around uh, I think this was uh, 1850 yen, so that this was about sort of 12 13 pounds. Now, the problem is people on eBay sell them for around anything from 40 to 50 pounds, so there's yeah. an incredible markup. Oh, Sounds about right, yeah. but if you can find one cheap enough on eBay, I would highly recommend just taking a punt and buying it because all of them have so much nice stuff in there. You can frame and rare, rare items. They're all replica of as you know, reprints. But yeah, they're, they're beautiful, beautiful so, sets. Do you own, did you go for the whole set or have you just been picking up? I went for almost. I was in, we were in, we were Ooh. in Japan quite a lot. Oh, of course uh, you could just pick it up at the time. So you could just pick them up and I just uh. put them in my luggage and come back with them. I got lots of stories. I met, I went drink, I used to go drinking with um, Kaiju film directors over there and, uh, Oh, but we never, we never, ch we never chatted about movies. We just chatted about travel and, and totally irrelevant <laughs> things to do with the actual films, which is a shame. Oh man! <laughs> Here we go. Well, now, now we have to follow up with stuff like that. <laughs> Thank you for setting the bar astronomically high. <laughs> oh dear. Connor, go on. If nothing else, um, if nothing else, um, so uh, the pre-orders for the Shin Ultraman 4K in Japan is now up on Amazon. So um, if you uh, want to buy that, that will be roughly £40, I'd, I'd imagine, with exchange rates uh, from Japan. Um, uh, you'll be glad to know anyone who's collected the uh, the Japanese Shin Godzilla 4K set, um, it, there's a matching spine uh, with it, so you can line them up and it looks all nice and all that. Um, so yeah, uh, go... Uh, don't expect subtitles. Don't expect subtitles. But uh, we're we're all here just for the monster actions. So. <laughs> um, but uh, also, uh, go pick up the uh, the Joe DeVito uh, Kong books, which I also recently uh, pre-ordered recently. Which is the, I would say, the officially authorized sequels to the original 1930s King Kong, mm. and uh, of course, uh, buy Coalface when it comes out. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, obviously we're going to say so. So it's Cold Face, The Devil in the Smoke, available thirty first of January. Fingers crossed on I'll Amazon. I'll be posting and... a date on social media, so just follow me on uh, Twitter. It's uh, at Gunwriter Twitter. So at Gunwright. Gunwriter. Gunwriter. Right, and that is that gun with two ends. It is. Yes. It is. Yep. Okay, we'll make sure we do that. Um, so yeah, so obviously we're, we're, we're plugging Cold Face. I'll also say check out Surface Tension because that looks really interesting. Well, you know, you can read it before or after Coalface, but it sounds, as you say, it's, a, it's an interesting 
opposite of Coalface, especially the colour palette. Um, and thanks to Joe, I'm going to say check out Shin Ultraman in the UK cinemas because we want more of that to come our way. So the more we can support it, the better. Here we go. All right. So I'm going to uh, call out something. Um, as the American, um, origin originally from America, uh, I feel like for everybody else who's listening to this podcast abroad, you know, like not in the UK, if you want to understand kind of where Jason's book is coming from, what we mean by Thatcher era Britain, um, a really great crash course or entry level introduction to it, you could actually just pop on Netflix and watch season four of The Crown. So Gillian Anderson, um, who many people will probably know from X-Files as Sully, uh, she plays Thatcher. She does a brilliant job. And you get a lot of who she was as a character and how she wasn't necessarily trying to like do any bad, but she made a lot of lives much harder. Um, and you can kind of see what the political climate was then. And then with regards to the coal strikes, you can see how close this country, the, the United Kingdom, came to having no power, no heating, and how some you know areas did have that problem. Um, it does a fantastic job of highlighting a lot of issues from that time period. So if you have the time, if you have the interest, if you want to see the political climate, um, rather than like potentially read a book or do some internet surfing, it, it's well acted, it's well done. And uh, the, each episode, I think like 45 minutes to an hour, and there's only a few. So you know, give that a watch if you want to have like a primer for Coalface, if you're not necessarily of British or UK living persuasion, because it really is a very interesting time in this country's history. And there are few documentaries or shows that really portray it in such a way that, you know, it, it, it's kind of like artistically and accurately and interestingly done. I think that's probably one of the things you'll get out of the crown. It's, it's like Thatcher is portrayed in an interesting way, not necessarily in kind of like a dry way. So yeah, I'll, I'll recommend that decisively unkaijurific um, show. But uh, yeah, the other thing I mentioned earlier in this podcast, if you are lucky enough to have the American dub and the uh, dub of the Japanese version of Godzilla 1984, you it would it would probably be a really interesting exercise and an appreciation in sound editing if you watch them back to back. Um, and you get an appreciation for a good dubbing job and a somewhat lackluster dubbing job and how sound editing can really do a lot for a film. Yeah, I'll end it on that. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We are really looking forward to Coalface again, end of January 2023. Look for it on Amazon. And as always, keep it kaiju.